0: So when I came into Christianity, I didn't leave all of that idealism at the door. I just brought it with me, right? We sometimes have this idea that when you're baptized, you leave all your baggage, you leave all that behind, and now you're this new creature in Christ. That's true, but that transition is incremental and it's sequential and we grow into who we are in Christ.
1: Every journey with Jesus is unique, but one thing is certain, every road of sojourning has both the transcendent moments of mountaintop clarity as well as the valley's dark night of the soul. So today, we have the privilege of getting to know someone who has experienced both. Joining us on this podcast is David Ashrick, a well-known speaker, preacher, pastor, author, avid rock climber, husband, and father. On today's program, we will take an inside look into his own spiritual journey of fatherlessness, thorns in the flesh, spiritual maturation from his youth, experience with professional jealousy, and as the crowning jewel, his journey of falling in love with Jesus day after day. If you're not already following us on Facebook and Instagram, you can find us at the handle at AdventNext. Joining us as my co-host is Max Aka, and I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. So I have a confession to make. Those who are listening, we had an amazing, incredible, phenomenal first uh, episode with uh, David Asherick, and it was not recorded. Uh, there were four people in the room, and we all were extremely blessed. Um,
2: it was a really good podcast. It
1: was really good. But it
2: was a, it was a limited release. Yeah, <laughs> limited to one guy, <laughs> one guy who's shaking his fists in triumph in the background right now. <laughs> and the three of us. I mean, it was
0: great to be a part of that conversation.
1: It was great. So we're going to try our best. To, to kind of recreate some of the magic that happened. In okay,
0: I, I think that the Lord is going to bless us.
1: And so, thank you, Jesus.
2: <laughs> and Kendra, just be of good courage. Yeah, she was. You were a little discouraged, but you it's going to be great. Around, She tore down half the studio. It was <laughs> wild. She, it was... I
1: set fires ablaze. It was. It was. I was heartbroken. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but that's because the Lord is going to
0: bless this one even more. And don't feel any time constraints. Let's just have that conversation. It's awesome. gonna be great.
1: Awesome. So I I wanted to kind of get the behind the scenes look. At who David Ashrick is. I think people see you on a platform. They see you doing a wonderful ministry. God has blessed you and elevated you. And I kind of wanted to kind of know a little bit of behind the scenes of who you are and share that with this audience hmm. um, so that you have this opportunity to kind of share, you know, who's the real David? And one of the things I wanted to kind of start off with is um, looking at the thorn in the flesh. You know, I think that as God brings us to different heights in our ministry, as he entrusts us with more responsibility, sometimes he also brings a thorn that is of the same, Magnitude Mm -hmm. to kind of keep us humble. And I was wondering, what does that thorn in your life look like?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I want to say thank you guys so much for having me on the podcast here. I've been a follower of yours on Instagram for several months. I love the look, I love the vibe, I love the interviews. You had Dr. Peckham on uh, a while back. That was incredible. Great interview, by the way. You guys really do a great job. Um, So thank you. Great to be here. So this is going to sound like kind of a funny answer, but My personal feeling is, I think if you go back and look at the text, Paul's thorn in the flesh was probably related to his eyesight, right? There are these little textual hints and indications that, you know, probably trace back to his experience there on Damascus Road, where he was blinded by the risen Christ, and then he went into Damascus and three days was blinded. And you know, I know you guys are both in seminary, so you would know some of these like little intimations that it was... Maybe the eyes, right? Mm-hmm. He says in Galatians, you would have given me your eyes if you could have.
2: Yeah.
0: And just mentioned the, the large handwriting. Yeah, the large handwriting, right? Yeah. See, I've signed this with my own name. Look at how large the handwriting is. So two things. I want to I give kind of an unusual answer here. The first is one of the things that's been difficult for me in my life, and, and I think this is only coming more and more to the forefront of sort of my awareness, is since I've had children now that are transitioning into their late teens and... Over the course of sort of my parenting and my two boys, I have noticed that my own fatherlessness in my early life is showing up in ways that I would have never expected. Hmm. Um, Sort of the short version there is I never met my biological father. He uh, was very young. My mom was very young when I was born. He left about three weeks later. Wow. A couple years later, my mom remarried and the man that she married was not my dad, but she and he had my younger brother so we have same mom different dad mm. and he stuck around for like 6 years 7 years and then left now that was particularly hard for my brother as you might imagine because when my biological father left me I never met him I mean, I was still a little baby wrapped in a you know a, a blanket yeah. but when my brother's dad left he w- my brother was like 6 years old oh wow i was like 9 and he was my dad like he was like my you know Not my biological father, but he was a father figure. Mm. And so we both had significant experiences of abandonment from our father. And it wasn't until we were in almost our early teens, well, I was in my early teens, where I got a dad that is now my father to this day. He's an incredible man. He loves my mom. He's loved me and my brother. And um, I've got two brothers and two sisters. He brought two to the family, and then my uh, mom and dad ad- adopted a, a sister. Hmm. So it's really a, a crazy family, wow. wild, wonderful, composite family. But in the raising of my own children, I have found myself at times just feeling almost an anger or a frustration at times, even like, a kind of, like I'm on the verge of violence. And I'm not a violent person, not at all. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm thinking, where's that coming from? And I think it's coming from this sort of reservoir of unconsciousness about this father wound, right? What some have called the father wound that I have in my life, mm. Mm. and that has been an opportunity for me to rely on my heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, throughout my teen years, and then into my twenties, thirties, and now my forties, my my dad, the man that I call my dad now, whose last name I bear, uh, Asherik, has mm. become an incredible father figure to me.
1: Wow. So uh, he was. So th- your last name comes from. Someone who wasn't your biological Yeah, daughter.
0: no. Yeah, I've okay. actually had three last names. So I was born David Cross, okay. and then I was David Dormany after I was adopted the first time for like seven years. And then I was adopted again, my own choice. I actually spoke on this this morning at Andrews. Um, I chose the name Asherik mm. because I elected to be adopted by this this new man that was in my mom's life, mm. who to me was somebody to be wary of, right? I'd already been left by my first dad, left by my second dad, who was my brother's biological father. So I was on the back foot. Like I was not ready to accept another father-like figure into my life, but he, he was incredible, frankly. And he loved my mom and he loved me and he loved my brother. And we were given the option by my mom whether or not to be adopted. Mm-hmm. And we elected to be adopted. Wow. So the name that I have now is a name, this will sound kind of crazy, but it's a name I've chosen, mm. right? Asherik is a name, because it felt so weird to have the name of somebody who was not my biological father who had abandoned me.
1: Mm-hmm. Right?
0: Why would I have that name? Right. So this name now, I, I love this name, Asherik. And so in answer to your question, I think that has been at least something that I've had to be mindful of, mm. And I think we'll talk maybe a little bit more about this. But one of the things that I've been really passionate about is rebounding off of that adversity, rebounding off of that thorn in the flesh Mm. to turn that generational curse into an opportunity for a blessing. And I've just decided, I want to be a great dad. Mm. I just want to love these two boys. I want to love my wife. I want to create a new story, a new legacy in my family I wanna be a great dad to my two boys. I want my two boys to be great fathers when the time comes for them. And so, yeah, that's something I've had to be mindful of Mm. that I think we all are products sometimes of both the conscious and the unconscious reservoir of traumatic experiences in the past. And it wasn't until I had kids that I was like, why am I saying this? Why am I acting this way? Why am I behaving this way? Mm. And a dear friend of mine, Jennifer Schwerzer, brought to my attention, this was years ago, that probably some of this is coming out of this sort of reservoir of woundedness that I feel and abandonment that I felt from wow. my father wound.
2: Mm. Wow,
1: wow. And, and I I love how you've taken a story and, and, and something that happened to you, you didn't have a choice in it, and you've turned it around. And I think that that's such a model of what we have mm. uh, for our own lives. You know, there are a lot of things that we don't have choices about that happen to us. And how do we play our deck of cards in the most way that can glorify
0: the Lord? Amen. I like the way you say that. I'll tell you something else I I kind of find interesting. This is a weird answer. Remember I said there's a two-part answer. I would never call my wife, Violetta, who's the most incredible woman I've ever met. I would never call her a thorn in the flesh. She is not that. She's the rose of my life, right? Mm -hmm. To use the analogy. But Paul's thorn in the flesh served the purpose of keeping him humble and keeping him grounded. He wasn't married, right. right? So maybe he needed something external like that, right? To sort of keep him... Because in my life, I can tell you this, I have an incredible wife who is affirming and she, she loves me and she celebrates me at times when it's appropriate, but she also can be drop real. She can drop the hammer. She can show up in my life in all the right ways and all the healthy ways and say, hey, you know, David, I don't think you handled that situation very well. Mm. And because I know she loves me, because I know she would never reject me or purposefully hurt me, I can receive the groundedness that she brings to me. And so while she's not a thorn in the flesh, she serves as we do for one another. It's mutual. She does serve that sort of incredible space. She's a minister of God to me, keeping me grounded and humble and turning me hopefully by the grace of God into the best version of myself. I literally Mm. would be less than half of the man I presently am without this incredible woman. They say behind every good man is a surprised woman.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've not heard that one before. That's a good one. That's a good one.
1: That's good. good. And I know that you've you've grown a lot since your conversion experience. Um, When you look back on who you were when you first came to Christ. Um, like, how, how do you see yourself having changed uh, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a Christian in your journey? What are some of those shifts that have taken place uh, from when you first began to where you are today?
0: Mm. One of the things I think that's been very important in my journey, and I think this will be similar for lots of people... Mm. I was converted when I was young. I was 23 years old. I was studying pre-med at the University of Wyoming. I was a former punk rocker. I was a straight-edge kid. I don't know if you know what that means. Mm -hmm. Vegan, straight-edge, no drinking, no drugs, none of that. And so I was incredibly idealistic. Mm -hmm. Like teenagers, people in their late teens and early 20s tend to be idealistic anyway. Mm -hmm. And I was like hyper-idealistic. So when I came into Christianity, I didn't leave all of that idealism at the door. I just brought it with me, Mm -hmm. right? We sometimes have this idea that when you're baptized, you leave all your baggage, you leave all that behind, and now you're this new creature in Christ. That's true, but that transition is incremental and it's sequential, and we grow into who we are in Christ, right? Our maturity in Christ. And so for me, the kind or the version of Christianity that I came into really suited the carnality of my early idealism. Interesting. Yeah. And that lent itself toward a judgmentalism. It lent itself toward a, frankly, a know-it-all mentality. It lent itself to a kind of, did I say judgmentalism already? Sort of like, um, I know what's going on and, and I know better. And that did not serve me well, honestly. And fortunately, that period in my life wasn't very long. And Mm. I I love this language. Ty Gibson's a dear friend of mine. He's going to be here this weekend for the um, Arise Intensive. And years ago, I was having this conversation with Ty and we were talking about how people sometimes come to us and say, your preaching has changed. Mm. You're different now than you used to be. And that is sometimes communicated in a positive way, which is great, but other times in a negative way, like, hey, you've changed. How come you don't speak the way you used to speak as if I have to be kept or we have to be kept hostage to the person we used to be five or 10 or 12 years ago. Right. And Ty's answer, I think it's the best answer I've ever heard. He says, well, I just tell those people, well, the reason I changed is I kept reading.
1: Hmm.
0: Hmm. I kept reading. I kept growing. I kept reading. And so in my own personal journey, I would say it was the factor of being super idealistic, bringing that idealism, baptizing it, sanctifying it, and then being like, whoa, actually this isn't really working. Mm. And then I'll say this, I had a couple mentors early on in my journey that didn't didn't provide the kind of counterbalance to that idealism that they should have. They actually fed that and they fostered that. Mm. And it took me being in different places geographically and in different places socially to be exposed to other people, other situations, to also in the words of Ty Gibson, keep reading, where you could sort of look back and say, yeah, I don't know if I could have gotten to where I am now if I hadn't gone on that
2: journey, but I'm glad I'm here and not there. Mm. Mm. You used a phrase that I want to unpack a little bit. You said carnality of idealism. Yeah. And I think that that's a very difficult concept for a lot of people to swallow. Yeah. Because I think it strikes people with the force of, oh, we need to live by ideals. We need Mm. to live by standards and all the nomenclature that comes with that. Gotcha. But to, to use the word carnal to describe that, I think yeah. would really fly in the face of a lot of deeply held assumptions. Hmm. So maybe we can unpack that because I think that in a way that would, to some people, sound like overturning a virtue. Hmm. And I don't yeah. think that's what you're going for. No, certainly it's not. It's certainly striking.
0: Okay, well, check this out. For me, Max, and I love the fact that you honed in on that. I've actually never used that phrase exactly that way before. It just kind of came to me in the moment. But it's growing out of, I think, the very experience that Paul describes in Galatians, mm. right, where Paul talks about, look, you want to talk about spiritual resumes? I was, I was a, you know, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. According to Zeal, I persecuted the church. I was of the tribe. Like, he brings his spiritual resume out, mm. and he says, But what things were gained to me, those I count but lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. Mm. right he basically says, you want to talk spiritual resumes? I'll I'll, I'll play that game with you. But I've actually moved beyond that. I've not moved away from virtue. I've moved toward virtue. Mm. And the truth of the matter is, is that even our spirituality, our religion can become carnal. Right. I mean, right. You read the gospels, you read the experience of Paul. We can turn I mean, there's this this incredible statement from the pen of Ellen White where she talks about, she uses the language that that was the bigoted religionists that were ultimately responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, Mm. right? Religion is no surefire guarantee of a connection with God or of being the best version of yourself. In fact, in many ways, religion is the number one place to hide from God, right? And in my own experience, I was never a hypocrite, and I don't say that in a pious way. Like I was not purposefully living a life contrary to what I knew was better. I just was growing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was young. I was passionate. I was idealistic. I thought I knew a lot more than I did. There's this great quotation from Mark Twain where he's describing his own development. And he says that he was amazed at how much his father learned between the ages of when Mark was like eighteen to twenty-five or something.
1: Hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, it's
0: great. It's a great quotation. I'm kind of uh, you know massacring it here, but but the point is is that what Twain is saying is is his dad quote unquote learned so much. That's not what happened. Hmm. His dad just kept saying the same stuff. But Mark grew, right? He began to understand maybe my dad knew something. Right. And as I say, if I would have had I think different mentors early on in my experience, not that I had bad mentors, I had good mentors. But in certain capacities, I think they fed that idealism. I think they fed that sort of sense of, hey, we've kind of got it figured out and too bad for the rest of these people that don't really know what's going on. Mm. Um, And that's carnal. Sectarianism is carnal. A reliance on self, you know, my self-righteousness is carnal. Mm. And it doesn't mean that virtue is carnal or that um, righteousness is carnal or that, you know, obedience is carnal. No, but for me there were aspects of even my religion that I look back on and think that was worldly. Mm. That was earth, earthly. Mm.
1: Mm. Wow. I appreciate you, you sharing that and giving that insight into how we can take our own religion and make it into a carnal thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious because I know that you, like I said, you embody a lot of what people see as excellence in ministry. And I kind of want to go behind the veil of like, what all goes into a sermon prep? Some people just see you at the mountaintop, but they don't see the climb. Right. They don't see all the, the planning of the gear and the packing and, mm. and scanning the routes. And right. Things. So what does that look like for you when, when you're preparing? How much work do you really put into this? I
0: love the fact that you just used a climbing analogy. <laughs> Another high five because, you know, I'm a climber. Are you a climber? No, no. no you just used the analogy. It just came so, so easily. Maybe okay. you should be a climber. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they have a climbing wall right here on campus. I was just up there yesterday in the Johnson Gym.
1: I actually didn't know that until you until I said. It. I was yeah, like, wow. oh, "I'm going to have to go." Check
0: a lot <laughs> of people don't know it. There's a great little climbing gym up there. Uh, Randy Falkenberg and a bunch of others are okay. up there, and they're doing a of great course. job. Of course, yeah, makes sense. They're doing a great job. So, hmm, sermon preparation. First of all, let me say, my favorite thing about what I do. My two favorite things about what I do is number one, connecting with people. Yeah. I just love people. I, I I drive my wife crazy because I can talk to people for hours and hours and hours late into the night after a sermon. I'm there for one, two, three, four hours. I love it. I I just love people. I love connecting with people. I love hearing their stories. And so there's there's gonna be that part, which I absolutely love. My second favorite thing is communicating something that God has shown me from the text of Scripture. Mm. And you'll often hear me say when I get up in front of a congregation or a, like we've been doing here the week of prayer at Andrews, and I'll say, I'm so excited about today's presentation. I'm not just saying that. Mm. Yeah. People sometimes ask me, do you get nervous? No, I get excited. I, mm. I sometimes will wake up and think, man, it's only six in the morning. I, I have to wait five hours to preach. I'm, I can't wait wow. to get access and say, the Lord showed me something incredible this week, and I can't wait to share it with you, which really is the question you're asking. Yeah. If you've not spent that time in the text, and not just in a studious way, sitting down, but ruminating, thinking, some of my best sermon ideas come to me when I've, when I've been in the text and I've spent those hours there, and then I'm out rock climbing. Mm. Then I'm out cycling. Uh, then I'm out doing something while the text is cooking, while it's baking in my mind, while I'm thinking about, and I'll give you a really good, practical application here and I'm, mm-hmm. I just want to strongly encourage young preachers or any preachers do not do your sermon preparation on Friday. Yes. Don't do it on Thursday. Right. Right if if I know I'm preaching next week, do you know when my sermon preparation begins? Right? Like it's already probably begun before this, but like for this upcoming week's sermon, my sermon preparation begins on on Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Because what I want to do is I want to have done the hard work of digging into the text on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, have a at least a general sketch of what's going to be talked about come Sabbath mm. so that I can ruminate and think illustrations on the Wednesday, the Thursday. Then what I do is is I sit down usually on a Friday, sometimes on a Thursday, just to put the finishing touches on the work that's been done the week, you know, earlier in the week, or let's say my associate pastor preached last Sabbath. Well, now I've got two weeks that I've been ramping up. Right. Mm. And so what happens is, is, it doesn't mean you couldn't pull off a great sermon that you prepared for on Friday, or even, uh, heaven forbid, Saturday morning, right? <laughs> you, you can do that, but what you don't get is that, that rumination, that, that time to, yeah, just to bathe in the text. Mm-hmm. And my experience has been, the longer that I wait to prepare right the later in the week that i wait to prepare the longer and more verbose and more professorial my sermons become interesting right they're more they're more punchy they're more pithy they're more powerful and i've kind of given you just a little you know a little clue here to discern whether or not i've done good sermon preparation mm-hmm. if you hear me going on and on and on and on for a long sermon and it sounds very verbose and very professorial and it's very you know sort of intellectually based i probably threw that together at the last minute, right. and if it's shorter and it's more punchy and you're like, wow, that was a great way to say that, well, the only way you get those hooks is if you've been bathing on the text and ruminating in the text for two, three, four days or a week or more.
2: Well, I've heard people say, I don't know who said this, but like, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Yeah, and I've, well said. I've been in situations like at a church where they had two services and the it was you know i'd done a little bit of prep but the first go at it was verbose and winding and kind of directionless and it finally landed but it was like okay and the second go at it and not everybody gets you know you don't always get that opportunity right. to test it out but having had the chance to sit with it a little longer and get familiar with it yes the second one is shorter it's much more impactful, it's mm-hmm. much more intense, it has all of the things that make it what it is are suddenly honed and sharpened.
0: Okay, so so that's exactly right. And, and one of the things that I often think about is, at least have an idea of where you want to go. This is why I'm really committed to preaching sermon series, not just one-offs. Occasionally, I'll preach a one-off, but I like the idea that we're going to develop an idea, we're going to develop a concept, we're going to study through a book, we're going to talk about something, not just for a week, but for five weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks. Then what happens is your mind is on these themes, on these ideas for week after week after week, and your congregation is thinking about these things week after week after week. And what it does is it allows you to sort of, again, marinate in those ideas, come up with the best ways to communicate them so that when you're standing up to preach, you're not just faking it. And let's be honest, sometimes you're just kind of like the old saying goes, when in doubt, say it with confidence, right? Sometimes you're just pulling it off by the skin of your teeth. And I hate that. I want to have something that Jesus has shown me. We've connected, we've spent time together. And I I wake up on Sabbath morning with that giddiness. And I'm like, man, I like, for example, tonight, I'm going to preach in a few hours here for the final night of the week of prayer. I cannot wait to share what God has put on my heart. Hmm. because it's going to be in many ways the culmination for the whole week of prayer. And it's an idea, it's a concept that for me has been revolutionary, and I can't wait. Hmm.
1: Wow, it it sounds like you know, it's a, there's a difference between a slow-cooked meal and one that's just thrown together. Fast food. Fast food. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, well said. Yeah.
1: So I, I'm curious because, you know, like I said, I know people see you kind of in this place uh, uh, flying high in your ministry, and I was thinking about this earlier, the story of Daniel and the story of Joseph. Mm. You know, uh, the kings who were... A, a part of that rule appreciated the diligence of Joseph and, and the giftings that Daniel had, but mm. their peers within their occupation did not appreciate that. And I was wondering if you've ever experienced uh, any of those types of professional jealousies and how do you deal with that?
0: You, there have been some of that. I, I, try to, I try to not pay too much attention to it. Years ago, I read this really lovely quotation from a female rock climber from many, many years ago. She's probably a hundred years old now, truly. Hmm. Her name is Jan Kahn. And she has this incredible quotation where she says, and this is a life-changing quotation. You ready for this? Simple concept, paradigm shifting. What other people think of me is none of my business. Hmm. Right? And, And when you sort of take that, assuming the best and not listening, not having your ear to the ground to see how do people relate to me? And this is what social media does, doesn't it? It just programs us to be hyper mindful of what other people think about us. But when you just sort of back away from that and say, I'm gonna assume the best about others. I'm gonna assume they want my success. I'm not gonna be even mindful to professional jealousy. You'll hear a lot less of it. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, not everybody wants your success, Mm -hmm. right? Certainly the enemy doesn't, but even among your peers, not everybody wants your success. I recently preached a sermon in my local church and then did a devotional at the school that my sons go to, Tweed Valley Adventist College, on Barnabas.
2: Hmm.
0: And the cool thing about Barnabas, the fascinating thing about him, first of all, is that his name wasn't even Barnabas. His name was Joseph. And Barnabas was the, name, the nickname that was given to him by the disciples. And the name literally means son of comfort or son of encouragement. And what that tells us is, is that Barnabas was the kind of person, and when you look at the sort of the pictures that are painted by Luke in Acts, between Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 15, where Barnabas makes his appearance, man, the guy is always networking in such a way that he's creating opportunities for people to succeed. Mm-hmm. He becomes the one that actually, when, right after Saul's conversion, this is in Acts chapter 9 everybody's afraid of Saul. All the disciples are afraid of Saul. They know that he was a former perse- persecutor. They're probably thinking, oh, this guy's just pretending to be converted so he can get access to us, know where we meet, and then he's going to you know, launch this you know, secret attack on us. Right. And Barnabas is like, no, 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 no. This is the guy. He was converted. And it actually says that that Paul went to Jerusalem and tried to join the disciples. But they were afraid of him. It says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: So Barnabas is this incredible figure that is a mentor to Paul. It's kind of weird to think about Paul almost as protege, but, but Paul was really not only brought by Barnabas to the disciples a little bit later in Acts chapter 11, when that Gentile church has been planted in Antioch, and Barnabas goes to check it out, he's like, whoa, this is crazy. Gentile church. I know just the guy for this situation. Mm. And it says that he went and found Saul and brought him there. So you get this feeling that Barnabas is somebody who loves the success of others, Mm. right? Like he is facilitating Paul. And then this really cool thing, super subtle, but super cool thing happens in the book of Acts that Luke, you know, he was a great writer, very organized. So it's highly likely that this was intentional. In the chapters, chapters 4 to 12, the phrase is this, for the most part, I think there's maybe one exception, but it says, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. After Acts chapter 13, where Paul goes on his first missionary journey and he stands up under the inspiration of the spirit, rebukes Jesus on the island of Cyprus there, and then he preaches that incredible sermon in the synagogue in Antioch, it shifts. Mm. And it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. One has now stood into the role of primacy, from protege to primacy, and you never get anything other than this strong sense that Barnabas couldn't have been happier, Hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: right? To see others succeed. There's just certain people that have the gift of helping others to flourish, Mm -hmm. right? And Barnabas was that person. I want to be that person, Mm -hmm. right? Don't you? Don't you want to be that person who, if somebody gets up to your level and then even goes beyond you, Mm -hmm. you don't feel insecure and jealous. You're like, hallelujah, Mm -hmm. God is using them. And I can say there was at least at least two circumstances in my journey with Jesus where I was given opportunities by early mentors to be invested in and to be grown. And I was loved and I was appreciated and I, would af- I was affirmed right up until the point where in some ways my ministry and my opportunities began to get a little more shine mm. than even the mentor. Mm. And I'm sad to report that that was not well received, and I went from being um somebody that was mentored to somebody that was viewed as an adversary mm. wow. and I'll be honest, that didn't hurt me professionally, but it pierced me emotionally mm. and I think that goes back to some of that sort of fatherlessness that we talked about because these were significant figures in my life that had invested in me, and then all of a sudden it was like wow." Am, Am I being rejected here just because God has gifted me in certain areas? Mm. So, you know, there have been some instances of the professional jealousy, but I think if you largely ignore it, yeah. it kind of goes away. And if you just love people and they see that you're a real person and you're not a prima donna and you just love people, mm. people say, yeah, you know, he's a little loud. He's, he's, a, you know, he's a big, loud American, but yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, it just
1: goes to show like, that that god you know sometimes uses other people shine to test our hearts. Yes, you know, he, thank you. He, and you yeah. mentioned this in the first podcast, um, that he did this with Saul. You know, the, you, you had the song of uh, Saul killed his thousands, but David has ten thousands, and and that was something that was a, a point of, of pride for Saul, That's right. and, he, and he began to be jealous of David. Or even when you look at how Joseph found if his brothers were really converted, what, Correct. he gave Benjamin a double portion. So sometimes it's even a test to our own heart when God allows people to kind of rise and outshine us, and, and how we respond to yes. That really does show our own character.
0: I agree. Think of the John the Baptist thing, where the disciples come and they're like, "Hey, Jesus is baptizing a bunch of people over there, and a lot more a lot more people are going to hear Jesus." And what is John the Baptist's response? That he must increase and I must decrease. Mm -hmm. We need to get to the place where we are so surrendered to Jesus and so unmindful of self Mm -hmm. and of ambition that we are absolutely thrilled when God is growing his kingdom through other people's expertise, through their giftedness. I want to be thrilled if my Arise students or if my colleagues or my associates go running by me because we have a world to reach. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, who cares who gets the credit? Mm -hmm. We're all gonna take our crowns off. We're gonna put them at the feet of Jesus and we're gonna say, worthy is the lamb, Mm -hmm. right? So I just, this professional competition that sometimes emerges, and again, if you pay no attention to it, it's like a bee that buzzes around you. If you start swiping at it and really become mindful of it, you might agitate it and it'll sting you. If you ignore it, it goes away. Mm -hmm. And so for the most part, I just ignore it. But if it does rear its head, you just say, man... What I don't want to do is what was, in some ways, done to me, and that is treat people in a way that, if you get ahead of me, then you're my adversary. Yeah. No way.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. I, go with God, and I hope you do ten times the work that I've done, a hundred times the work that I've done.
1: Wow. Wow. And kind of as we wrap up, my last question really kind of revolves around, you know, how God goes in the process of making you fall in love with him over and over again. Mm. So wanting to know like, what is your love language and how does God speak to you in that love language?
0: Well, as I told you in the first podcast that got deleted or whatever, (laughs) unfortunately,
2: unrecorded, unrecorded.
0: Unrecorded. Um, My love language, I got two, right? The five love languages. We're talking Gary Chapman here. uh, Five love languages. Number one, physical touch. Mm. I'm a toucher. Um, I love to, to be massaged. I love to be touched. I love to have my back scratched. I love to hug people.
1: Mm.
0: I've always been that way. I don't know why. Just, I love that. And my second is words of affirmation. I I really get wind under my wings when somebody says, hey, I like the way you said that, yeah. or the way you handle that situation. I got a real insight. that speaks to me. Now, listen, if you want to buy me a gift, I'm not going to say no. You're right. If you want to do an active service, I'm not going to say no. But those are really the things that resonate deeply with me. And in sort of my experience with Jesus, I think that it's very important for me to stay connected to him in scripture. I can trace like direct causation, not just correlation, but direct causation to the joy that i'm experiencing, the connection that i'm experiencing, the power that i'm experiencing in ministry to how much time am i actually spending in mm. the word. Mm. Mm. If i'm in the word and i'm praying for the outpouring of the holy spirit, man, jesus is just doing his thing in my life. And for me personally, that happens in the word and it happens in nature. Mm. I'm that outdoors guy. I'm not a city slicker. I'm from Wyoming where the antelope roam and the buffalo player. I think i said that backwards again. But I love to rock climb, I love to fly fish, I love to trail run, I love to backpack. I I find that those moments for me are not just moments of recreation, they're moments of worship. Mm. And when I'm out there I might be hanging from a cliff just by my fingers and just take a deep breath, probably one of my sons is belaying me and my wife's there with us at the cliff, hanging around in the hammock reading a book and I just think I'm living the most incredible life right mm. now. Mm. I'm so thankful to Jesus. In fact, this might sound a little macabre, and I don't want it to sound that way, but there have been many times in my life where I've had the thought, if I died right now, I would have nothing but incredible thankfulness to Jesus for the life I've lived, mm. right? The, the sunsets that I've seen, the experiences that I've had, the people that I've met, the sermons that I've preached, the, the things that I'm just so thankful. I feel like at 47 years young, my cup already runs over. Amen. And that Gratitude and that thankfulness that we have is itself an act of worship. Mm. And it's in those moments, particularly in the word and in nature, those are really my spiritual love languages, Mm -hmm. um, where God speaks to me and says, You're my son Mm. and I love you. I want to say one thing on that too. Yeah, please. In Romans chapter one, Paul goes through this incredible catalog of like the Gentile sins and he's like, You know, they exchanged the natural use of the women and they were idolatrous and they turned the glory of God into, you know, Corruptible things. You know, this passage I'm talking about, Romans 1 18 to 31. And then, right in the middle of this catalog of like really egregious sins that Paul knew his audience would be reading and going, Oh, yeah, that's right, those Gentile sinners. He says, Neither were they thankful.
2: Mm, mm. Wow.
0: And that has just always resonated so deeply with me that Paul. Paul was very happy to itemize unthankfulness with idolatry and sexual perversity. Wow. Wow. And so for me, I'm like, whoa, I want to live an incredibly thankful life. Yeah. And for me, that's one of the most attractive things that as Christians we can do, Hmm. to just be thankful people, people whose very effervescence is gratitude.
1: Wow. Well, I can definitely tell that you are grounded in gratitude in the way that you present and exude the love of Christ. And I I have a confession to make to our audience. This podcast episode was actually better than the one we lost. Okay,
0: good, good. I'm glad to hear you say that. So
1: you guys are getting the creme de la creme. You didn't miss anything. (laughs) Uh, We are so thankful to have you. Oh, Kendra,
0: I've loved it. And Max, I just want to say again, you guys are doing a great job. I love the Advent Next podcast. I'm going to tag you on Instagram. we got to get you a bazillion followers because the work you're doing is incredible.
1: Thank you so much. Stay tuned for next week's program as we continue our conversation with David Asherick discussing his journey in ministry and advice he would give to young leaders. It's a conversation you definitely don't want to miss. Once again, we'd like to thank our guest as well as the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. On whatever platform you're listening on, be sure to comment, like, and subscribe. Thanks for
2: tuning in and see you next week.